But it's great to be with you guys today. Uh, it's great to be able to continue in our series um, that we started called God Is. And, um, you know, one of the things I realize and understand and know that on this side of heaven, we're never going to really fully compre comprehend all uh, of who God is. But I really believe by looking at some of the attributes and character of God, hopefully we'll gain a better understanding and a greater appreciation for the fact that, guess what, yeah, he's still in control. Whether we think things are out of control or not, he is still in control. Last week we began unpacking the omnipresence of God, which simply means this. It means that God is everywhere in creation. Everywhere. There's no place he's not. Uh, he's in you know, he, he's present in every sunrise, he's present in every sunset, every event of life, every storm of life, he's a part of. He's present in every single second of every single day. And the cool thing is, God's just not here with us, not just here inside of us today, but he's also inside of all those believers and Christians in, in Haiti or in South America or in Africa or India or Asia, or Europe, or wherever, he is there at the same time. That's because he's a very omnipresent God. Today we're going to begin to unpack the next attribute, which is the omniscience of God. And a simple definition is just this, God knows everything. There's nothing that God does not know. Now, in the mid to late 1800s, a Bible college student went to the great preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon, and he just simply said, uh, Dr. Spurgeon, I, I'm greatly concerned uh, because I can't understand the meaning of a lot of the verses in the Bible. Ever been there? You, know, it, you just don't understand a lot of the verses, a lot of the things that are in the Bible. Spurgeon looked at this young man right in the eyes and kindly but firmly said these words. He said, young man, give God credit for knowing things that you don't know. And that you don't understand. That's true, isn't it? Here's the thing that I thought of when I read that, and that's this. If we could fully comprehend God, then he's not really a God worth knowing or serving, is he? If we could fully comprehend, we could fully understand who God was and who God is, then he's not really a God worth knowing or serving. Now think about the fact that God knows everything. All that is, all that was. All that ever will be. I mean, his knowledge is complete. God's never surprised. He never makes a new discovery. Not once has somebody sat down at their computer to write something in a blog or to put somebody on Facebook only to have God say, Are you kidding me? Gabriel, Michael, you've got to come over here. You've got to see this because I would have never expected they were doing that. I mean, not once. You see, God's never surprised. He's never stumped. There's no mathematical equation that's too tough for him. No final Jeopardy question that he can't answer. And he's definitely smarter than a fifth grader. Here's a sampling of what the scripture says about God's omniscience. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28 writes, Why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine? O Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Don't you know anything? Haven't you been listening? God doesn't come and go. God lasts. 
He's creator of all you can see or imagine. He doesn't get tired out, doesn't pause to catch his breath, and he knows everything inside and out. Isaiah 55, starting verse 8, the Lord says, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. Your ways are not like my ways. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my uh, ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, don't continue bragging. Don't speak proud words. The Lord is a God who knows everything and he judges what people do. The psalmist writes in Psalm 147, 5, our Lord is great and very powerful. There is no limit to what he knows. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. Now, why is this so important for us to understand? Well, it's, it's important because there is no one who knows us and who accepts us more completely than the God who created us and loves us in spite of ourselves. Who loves us in spite of the sin that's in our life. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. What would it be like to realize that somebody knows everything about your life, beginning to end? To know that they have access to every part of your life, every little detail, every little nook, nook and cranny, they have access to the good and the bad, the sins of the past as well as the sins of the present. Those words that, <laughs> that slipped out at the worst possible time, the drivers you flipped off, or the things that you did in private thinking that nobody would ever see. I mean, what would that be like? I mean, the reality is, for most of us, or for all of us, it's a little frightening, isn't it? I mean, it's a little scary to think that someone would know the most intimate details of who we are. And yet, that's exactly the picture you get of God. God knows more than we'd care to have known if given the chance. Now, I think that most of us who have been Christians for, uh, for very long, I think most of us, at some level, we understand this concept. We understand the fact that God knows. He knows these, these details. The problem is, we still try to hide these things from God, don't we? I mean, even though we may understand this truth, we still try to hide. We still try to keep things from God. We think that somehow we can keep it from him. And if we do keep it from him, guess this, maybe he won't judge us right away. Maybe he won't reject us right away. Maybe we can put off that lightning bolt that's going to come back down and you know, turn us into a McNugget. I mean, we have those fears inside of us. You see, it's hard for us to comprehend a God who can know everything about us, and yet he can still accept us and love us in spite of that truth. Now, in the first six verses of Psalm 139 that we began to look at last week, David found himself at this same place, yet he wasn't afraid. He wasn't ready to run. He wasn't ready to hide. Instead, the realization that, that, that God knows him better than he knows himself 
it was actually a source of comfort for David. Because he realized that the creator of the universe loves him in spite of how messed up his life is. J.I. Packer writes, I am never out of God's mind. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. No moment when, he, when his care falters. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me. How awesome is that? And so what is David in these first six verses of Psalm 139? Because last week we just kind of read through them, but we really didn't talk about these first six verses. And so what is David wanting us to understand here that can really help us? Well, I think the big takeaway from these first six verses is simply this. God knows us because he's intimately involved in our lives. God knows us because he's intimately involved in our lives. Look at what David says starting out in verse 1 of Psalm 139. He says, God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. Now, the Hebrew word investigates means to examine carefully or to explore. And it carries with it the idea of digging or scouring. And what David is saying is that God knows us from the inside out. There's nothing about us that he isn't aware of because he has scoured, he has dug into every nook and cranny, into every part of our life. He has dug and he has scoured and he knows us. He's intimately involved in who we are. And what does he know? Well, David kind of breaks that down. Look what he says. First of all, he says he knows what we think. David put it this way, even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. But he also says he knows what we do even before we do it. David put it this way. You know when I leave and when I get back, I'm never out of your sight. Some of you may remember, it's been about a couple years ago when I shared with you this, this little story. Um, it was about a Christian school and they were struggling financially a little bit. So they were really worried, especially about having enough food for the kids. And so one of the teachers made this sign up and she put it in a bowl of apples that was on at the front of the line in the cafeteria. And it simply said, please take one apple. God is watching. Now one creative student the next day brought in another sign. And he took it down to the other end because at the other end was this pan of chocolate chip cookies. This sign read, take all you want. God's watching apples. <laughs> But the reality is, God's watching, and he, and he knows. He knows what we do, even before we do it. Because nothing is hidden from our God. The third thing is this, he knows what we say. David writes, you know everything I'm going to say before I, I start the first sentence. You see, God not only hears everything that we say, he knows what we're going to say before it comes out of our mouth. And fourthly, he knows what we need Again, David put it this way, I look behind me and you're there. Then I go up ahead and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. As David thinks about our all-knowing God, he realized that he had nothing to fear because his God had surrounded him. 
has surrounded him. His presence was protecting and was providing for his every need in his life. And as he began to think about that, again, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't ready to run. He wasn't ready to hide. Instead, this realization of who God was and the fact that God knows all things literally just blew David away. It just blew him away. And so it caused him to cry out in verse 6 these words, this is too much, it's too wonderful, I can't take it all in. He was blown away. In the Hebrew, the word wonderful is placed at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. And so the verse should read this way, it should read, wonderful is God's knowledge. It's too lofty for me to even understand or imagine. And so David was just blown away by what his God knew and who his God was. And so the question then becomes this. So what does that mean for you and me today? I mean, how does knowing that our God is omniscient, that he knows all things, how should that impact us? That who we are, how we live, how should that knowledge impact our lives? I just want to give you three things this morning. The first is this, because he's an all-knowing God, I can trust him with my future. I can trust him with my future, because the reality is, the older I get, I don't know about you, but, but, but I understand there's a lot about my future I have no clue about. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to be doing a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, because I don't know that. But the good thing is, the one who loves me more than anything does. And he's willing to show me. Now, here's the thing. I think most of us would have to admit that at some point in our life, even now maybe, you've spent time thinking about the future. We all do that. We think about the future. Maybe it's just a daydream or maybe it's a very intentional plan that you have laid out for your life. Such as when you want to go back to get that graduate degree, or when you want to get out of the military, or when you want to take that dream vacation, or maybe it's where you want to retire to. You know, somebody once said, I spend time thinking about my future because that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with looking into the future. There's nothing necessarily wrong with having plans, but here's what I want you to understand. Not only does God already know what your future will be, get this, he already has a plan for your future. And his plan is a perfect fit for how he created and wired you. And his plan is better than any plan that you could ever dream of. And so the question is not, does God have a great plan for my life? Because the answer to that is, Yes, he does. The question really should be, are you and I going to get in on that plan? Are we going to get in on it? Are we going to cooperate with God and follow his plan, or are we going to settle for something less? Look at what Jeremiah says. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, he says these words, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future, and a hope. Now understand, he doesn't say, I know the plans that I have for you. They are plans to make you rich, successful, to get you everything you ever wanted. That's not what it says. It says, 
for I know the plans I have here, and they're good plans. They're plans not for a disaster, but they're there to give you a future and hope. The thing we have to understand is this. God's plans and God's definition of, of success is totally different than ours. Because we view it from an uh, earthly material point of view, and he views it from more of a spiritual plane point of view. And so his plans are the best plans for our life. Because his plans are not thinking about just our immediate future, but the future we'll spend with him in eternity. The bottom line is this. Are you willing to trust the all-knowing God with the rest of your life? Because that's really the question. Are you willing to trust the all-knowing God with the rest of your life? Are you willing to lean into the omniscient God as he leads you down the path he has for you? Now, there's something else that I want to point out about our omniscient God, and that is this. He doesn't struggle with being uncertain about the future. But my guess is, most of us here today, man, we struggle with, with the uncertainties of the future, don't we? I mean, there are times when we, we just struggle with not knowing, with that uncertainty, so what do we do when that happens? Well, we need to learn to trust him with the future. Because the more of our future we commit and trust to God, get this, the more God commits to revealing that future to us a little bit at a time. You see, he knows where we need to be. He also knows the best way to get us there. And so trusting God with our future is the best thing that we could do, even if it doesn't make sense in the present. And that's where we get into difficulties and we have a struggle and a hard time because there are times in our life when the things that we're going through in the present just don't make sense. And so we wonder, God, are, are you there? And so we have to trust him with our future and, our, and the leading us down the path he has for us, even if it doesn't make sense today. Which brings us to the second impact on our lives. And that is this, because he's all-knowing, not only can we trust him with the future, but we can trust him with the present. We can trust him with the present. I mean, God not only wants you to trust him with the future, he wants you to trust him with your present, with your everyday, day-to-day -day type of life. Today. Now, you may not find this interesting, but I was thinking about this. And the word that we use for living in the present, it's the same word that we use when we say, I'm going to buy you a present, or I'm going to buy you a Christmas present, or a birthday present. Same word, present. So, this is what that said to me. Today is a gift from God. Today really is, it's a gift from God. It's a, it's a gift that God gives us. And all he asks is that we commit to trusting him with our today. After all, he already knows what today is going to hold. He knows the pressures of the day. He knows the stresses of today. He knows the good and the bad and the ugly parts of today. He already knows those things. And so as you learn to trust him with your day-to-day -day life, he will begin to reveal to you the next step that you need to take, and that will lead to the best that he has for you in your life. And all he asks is that you're obedient to that, that leading and that you're obedient to that next step. 
But here's the problem I think we all run into. I don't know about you, but I'm like this. We just don't like to wait, do we? We just don't like to wait. I mean, we want to know, God, okay, if you have a plan for me in, in the future, I want to know what it is now. I want to know what it is today. Can you begin to just show me? We don't like to wait. We don't like not knowing what's ahead of us. And so we get concerned. We can even panic, especially when we hit those roadblocks or there's a delay in the plan. And we can even find ourselves saying this to God, saying, God, I cannot believe you led me down that road. What were you thinking? God, don't you have this heavenly GPS programmed into my life? How could you have led me down that road? Let me ask you, how many of you have navigation on your cars? How many have a navigation? Raise, raise your hands high. Come on. Have navigation on your cars. How many have navigation on your phone? GPS on your phones. Okay. How many of you ever use Google Maps? Or you use Google Maps? It's interesting. A lot of the same people. You have navigation. You have GPS on your phones. You have Google Maps. <laughs> you evidently must really get lost. I don't know. But now, now, here's the interesting thing that most of those things do. What those things do, they show you an overview of the whole map, don't they? I mean, they will show you start to finish. So if you program in, you're going from point A to point B, you pull that up and it will show you point A to point B and it will show you where you start and it will show you where you end, right? I mean, that's what the GPS does. Here's the problem. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. And this is where the frustration comes in for many of us. God doesn't show you the end result of your future other than heaven. Instead, he just shows you the step that you need to take today and then the step that you'll need to take the next day. And even though he sees and he knows the whole map of your life, get this, he also knows what revealing that map in its entirety would do to us. That's why he asks us to just be obedient and to just trust him with the rest. And through trusting, our character begins to develop. We begin to grow into the person that he's created us to be. And we are able to get to the future that he has waiting for us. There's a great passage that's found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, that can help us with the present. It simply says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. We've talked about this before. That's, that's where we get in trouble, isn't it? Right there. Because we depend on our own understanding. He says, don't do that. He says, seek his will in all you do. And then what's going to happen? Look, he will show you which path to take. So why is trusting in God instead of what we think so important? Here's the reason. It's because basing our day on what we think will always lead to stress, fear, a lack of faith, and worry. But trusting our day to his direction will always bring peace, regardless of the circumstance. Now understand that. It will always bring peace regardless of the circumstance. It won't bring peace just when things are good. It will also bring peace when things are bad. 
It'll also bring peace when you don't understand what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day. It'll bring peace. Why? Because you are trusting him with today. Understanding that he knows what's best for tomorrow and a year from now and five years from now. Now there's one other thing. And this last one is very important. Because it's the reason why some of you haven't trusted God with your future. And it's the reason why some of you are not trusting God with your present. And it's this. It's because you have been afraid to trust God with your past. You see, because he's an all-knowing God, I can trust him with my future. I can trust him with my present. And I can also trust him with my past. So the question is, have you trusted him with your past? With your past life. Let's be, very real, let's be really honest this morning. We all have things in our past that we wish God didn't know, don't we? I mean, if God is omniscient and he's all-knowing like we've talked about, that means he knows every one of those things that have been in my past. He knows all those sins that I've been carrying around with me in this baggage that I carry. And the reason we struggle with trusting him with the present and the future is because we haven't been able to trust him to take care of the baggage of our past. And so we're still trying to carry it around. And we're still attached to it. The sin that separates us from God. We still carry it. Because we're afraid to trust him with it. We're not sure what he's going to do. Here's the root of the problem. Without Jesus Christ in our life, our hearts are unholy and they are diseased by sin. And that's the bottom line. Apart from Christ, man, without Christ in our lives, our hearts are unholy and they are diseased by sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? You see, our spiritual heart doctor looks at our hearts. And when he does, this is what he finds. He finds deep disease. That's what our hearts are like apart from Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 7, starting verse 21. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's why without Christ in our lives, man, the bags that we carry around, they only get heavier day after day after day without Christ. And so you, you just begin to pile bag after bag after bag, and the, heavy and the, the heaviness of those bags just literally begin to take you out apart from Christ. So here's the million-dollar question. If the condition of our hearts is separating us from God, then is there anything that we can do that can be done to correct our heart condition? And the answer to that is, you bet there is. And it begins by understanding and accepting what God has already done for each and every one of us. You see, it has nothing to, to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what he's done. And you have to begin to understand and accept what he has already done for you. Here's how I like to describe it. 
when I talk to people. This is what I like to say, what God has done for us. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he exchanges hearts with you. He gives you a heart transplant. And guess what? Your old heart, your lying, deceitful, adulterous heart, he takes. And now you take on his heart. And he gives you his. And because he has yours, God places all your sin upon him. And then he punishes it on the cross. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 53, verse 6. We have all wandered away like sheep. Each of us has gone his own way. But the Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil we have done. Our holy God places our sin on his sinless son and he allows his son to be placed on the cross so that our sin can be cleansed through the shedding of his blood. And why did he do that? He did that so that you and I could know and understand the depth of forgiveness. He did that so that you and I could understand that we no longer have to carry around the bags of the past. And if you're still carrying around the bags of your past, you have not understood what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Because his death on the cross set you free from the past and from the baggage that you carry. And he gives us a second chance at real life. There's a great story in, the, in John chapter 8, starting in verse 1 through verse 11, that really gives us a picture of this. Jesus is teaching at the temple. As he's teaching, all of a sudden, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they bring a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, not caught having done adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery. And they bring her, and they literally thrust her and put her right in front of Jesus. And they do this because they're trying to trap Jesus. And this is what they say. They say the law of Moses says that she needs to be stoned to death. She was caught in the act of adultery. She needs to be stoned. And they're standing there with these rocks. And so Jesus just kneels down. He begins to take his finger and he begins to write in the dirt. He's right. I don't know what he's writing. He's just right. And then he stands up after a few moments. He simply says this, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And then he kneels down and he begins to write in the dirt some more. Now I've always wondered about that. I think he was writing the names of all the guys she'd slept with. And I think some of them were on his list. Because all of a sudden, they drop the rocks, and they leave. And then he says, who condemns you? And she raises her face and looks around, and she says, nobody. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. It's a beautiful picture of what God has done. His death on the cross gives us a second chance at life like she had. So what can we do? 
Well, you have to trust Christ to remove your past. Just like you have to trust him with today in the present and you have to trust him with your future, you have to trust him with your past. And here's the steps that you can take to begin that process. The first is this. We must realize and accept the fact that we have sinned. I mean, this is the beginning point, isn't it? We have to accept, realize and accept the fact that we have sinned, that we're all sinners. You may not like to hear that. You may not like to hear the fact that you've sinned and that you're a sinner, but guess what? That's what the Bible says. That's the reality of life. And until you accept that, that truth, you'll continue to carry around these bags of the past. And you must realize and accept that. The Bible even says in Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. But the second thing we need to do is we've got to repent. In other words, we need to turn around, to turn away from, to make that 180, that about face, to leave that life of sin. We need to repent and confess our sin to God. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, after Jesus ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Everyone that was there that, that day at Pentecost, Peter, filled with the Spirit, began to preach to a lot of the same crowd who just 50 days or so earlier had yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. And when Peter preached that they had literally killed the very Son of God, the Messiah, they cry out, well, what must we do? Look what Peter says in in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want a good picture of what confession is, look at the life of David. And David's confession in, in Psalm chapter 51, after David's sin with Bathsheba, the adultery that happened, and then the murder of her husband Uriah. After almost a year of carrying around the bags of what he had done, the prophet Nathan came to him, and David fell to his face and realized and admitted his sin. And look what he he does when he confesses. Look what it says, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. That's confession. Now, there's an extremely important principle that we have to understand when we talk about confessing to God, and it's this. When we confess our sins to God, we don't ask God to agree with our assessment of the sin, okay? We're not asking God to agree with our assessment. We are simply agreeing with his. You see, God does not ask us to confess our sin because he needs to know we have sinned. After all, we, we've already talked about the fact he knows everything. He knows every nook and cranny of our life. He knows every detail of our life. He already knows we've sinned. We're not confessing because he needs to know. It's because he knows that we need to know that we have sinned. That's what confession is all about. It's so that we realize and we know that we have sinned. When my boys were in younger and growing up, and when Lucy was a nurse in the schools, and I coached tennis in the schools, there, 
I got to know the administrators. She got to know the administrators. We knew the teachers. There was rarely any time they would get in trouble that we didn't already know about. Okay? And it's just reality. We, we would know about it. And let me tell you, it meant so much more to me when my boys, when they got in trouble, would come to us and say, hey, Dad, this is what happened. This is what I did. And even though I already knew it, it showed me that they were actually sorry for what they'd done when they came to me. Same principle with God. God already knows. But he knows we need to know. We have sinned. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, but if we confess our sins to him, he can be depended on to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong thing. And so we must realize and accept the fact we've sinned. We must repent and confess our sin to God. And then there's the third thing. We don't talk about this a lot, and we probably should talk about it more, but it's reality, and that is this. We, we allow God to bury our baggage through the spiritual act of baptism. We allow God to bury the past, to bury the baggage, to get rid of them, and we can do that through the spiritual act of baptism. Now, the reality is we, we can sit down, and, and you can argue all day about baptism, and people do. They argue all day about it. But if you want to actually know what the Bible says, then you need to look at what the Bible says. And the Bible says baptism was always done by immersion. The word baptize means to immerse, to dip, to plunge, or as somebody once said, to put under until you bubble. Okay, that's baptism. Sprinkling didn't even happen until several hundred years later when it was brought in by man. The only thing the church knew for the first couple of centuries, was baptism by immersion because that's what the, the word means. But it's also because of what it pictures. It's a symbol of your death and your burial and your resurrection into Christ. It's a picture of where you take those bags of the past and you bury them. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans. He said these words in Romans 6, starting in verse 1. Well then, should we continue on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. The Romans had this philosophy that because God gives us grace when we sin, then let's just sin a lot more. Because if we sin a lot more, we get, a more, we get more grace. Paul goes, you can't do that. That's ridiculous. Then he tells us why. Look, he says, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Now, there's a principle that's universal across the board, and that is this. When things die, we bury them, right? I mean, it's just life. Things die, we bury them. He says, since we have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live a new life. You want to get rid of your past? You want to bury your past? You need to ask the question, have you been baptized into Christ? Have you been immersed into him? Have you symbolically in your life demonstrated the inward change by the outward act of baptism where you symbolize the fact that you were burying the old life with its sin, with its bags, with its past, so that God can raise you to a new life, so that now you can trust him with your present and you can trust him with your future. Have you done that? Because if you haven't, then we need to have a talk. We just need to sit down and talk and go through the Bible and let you see what the Bible says. 
So let's reflect. I know I've been a lot longer today, and I apologize, but we just have a lot to get. There's just a lot here. As we reflect, I want to look at the last two verses of Psalm 139. We looked at the first six. Let Let me just go to the last two of that psalm, because they're very similar to the first. David writes, investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. Now what David mentioned in verse 1, he now makes a matter of prayer. You see the verb for investigate? It also carries this meaning of digging up valuable minerals. The term test is used for examining precious minerals and metals to prove their purity. This is basically what David is saying. David is basically saying this, Go ahead, God, dig away at my life. Find in me that which is valuable to you and test me so that you can remove anything that is impure so that I can be the person you have called me to be. You see, if we don't spend time asking God to examine our hearts, we will never live the life that he desires us to live. And so this is what I want us to do for the next few moments. As we spend time reflecting, Adam's going to come and he's going to play. And as he plays, I just want you to pray these four things. First of all, I want you to pray, God, investigate my life. Investigate my life. I mean, look at my life, examine it, I'm an open book to you, God. Just just investigate, dig, scour. Look for those precious things in me. Second of all, pray, God, test me. Test me. And point out those things, God. So he says this. Pray, this next one is, God, tell me. Tell me what you have found. And show me, God, what I need to do. And then lastly, pray, God, help me. Help me to be that person. Help me to be what you wanted me to be, what you've called me to be. Help me, God, be that person. Investigate, test, tell, help. As we reflect, I just want you to pray those four things. And as you pray, if, if there's anything in your life that God points out, if there's... Anything in your heart that he's pricking, that that is coming to your attention, that as he scours you and digs in your life and he brings to the surface, then you need to deal with it. And don't leave here without dealing with it. Maybe it's in repentance that you need to come. Maybe you've never been immersed into Christ and you just want to come and say, hey, I just want to talk about this. I want to get some more info. I want to see how I can get rid of my past. So I don't know where you're at. My prayer is you'll use this time to really search what God has for you and what he wants you to be, to become. We serve an all-knowing God and you're not hiding anything from him. And it's time we deal with that truth. Let's reflect. Let's reflect.